You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. Good evening and welcome to this week's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and tonight it's a second helping show where liquid refreshments take centre stage. First up, it's a visit to Addy Flynn Estate on the outskirts of Limerick City where I meet General Manager Paul Mordaunt and later in the programme we remember the advice about ordering wine in a restaurant that our resident wine guru Ron Forrestal shared in November 2017. But before that, a quick reminder of how to get in touch with me here at The Best Possible Taste. The email is s.noonan at live.ie or you can tweet me at Queen of Org as in Queen of Organisation and I'm on Instagram at Sharon J. Noonan. So in October 2018, Addie Flynn Estate enjoyed lots of success at the Blossner and Irish Food Awards when the company walked away with four awards including Best New Startup. In the summer of 2017, I visited the award-winning producer of natural fruit beverages, vinegars, preserves and chutneys and met general manager Paul. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Paul, it's lovely to be here in Addy Flynn Estate on the outskirts of Limerick City. Tell us a bit about the background to the estate. Hello Sharon. Thanks a million for coming around today. It's, uh, it's great to have you here. Um, well, the background for Addy Flynn Estate is quite broad and large but um, from a, a brief historical perspective the estate was established around 500 years ago uh, originally on around 350 acres it's been made a little bit smaller because it's a motorway close by but um, it's been used for food production of all shapes and sizes from um, grain, animals, the whole lot uh, the wall garden itself is established a few hundred years here so it's had a lot of um, food provenance in its history and it's up to date now something that we're trying to bring back uh, and shine let that heritage shine through and so forth one of the things that strikes you whenever you come in are the orchards there's a lot of apple trees that's right yeah we've just shy of 10 acres planted um there's about six thousand trees over 13 varieties so yeah there's a lot of apples and a lot of picking, a lot of good hard work to be done to, to get the apple in and make the quality juices. But it's uh, it's what's necessary to be able to do it at the, the level and scale that we want to do it. There's a lot of different varieties there. Is there a reason why you've selected certain types of apples? Sure, sure. Um, some of the varieties we have are, are classic varieties, such as your, your Red Windsors, your Christmas Pippins. But we've um, we deliberately looked for some unusual varieties, such as our Saval which is a, an apple that's uh, grown particularly well in France. And then we have an Acadia apple, or Katia, as it would be known in the Scandinavian countries. And um, they're selected for their flavour profiles. Uh, and also, other design in their selection is around when they ripen. So we want to be able to bring apples in when they first start to ripen at the end of August. Uh, and then our last apples will be coming in towards uh, kind of the end of November. It spreads our workload out and makes things a little bit easier from a a labour point of view and from a, a pressing and production point of view. Does that mean if I was to buy a bottle of Addy Flynn Estate apple juice today and I was to buy a bottle in six months' time, would there be a big difference in the flavour? Um, there can be, depending on the variety that we press, of course. Um, what we're able to do now that we have some uh, new equipment is to control that um, 
the flavour profiles that we're putting out ourselves so we can do a single variety which works very well for an apple like the Saval or we can blend them so that you've quite a tart apple mixing with quite a sweet apple it gives you a much more balanced flavour um, so you know you're right the, the times and the, the, the varieties that uh, that yield the apple will definitely yield a different taste. And you mentioned to me whenever we were out in the tour about uh, a system where you put the apples to sleep. Yeah, we put them to sleep, so to speak. We um, So apples essentially ripen and continue to ripen when they're taken off the tree uh, or they oxidise. So we're able to put them into storage, which controls the amount of oxygen and the amount of carbon dioxide that's in the uh, the containers. And that essentially puts the apples to sleep or, or pauses and, or almost completely slows down ripening. Um, some apples will, will take very well to this type of storage. Some of them don't like it at all. And um, that's the beauty of having different varieties. It means that, you know, ones that don't like storage, we can press immediately. Others that like storage, we can leave in for three, six months. Um, another reason we do it is that although we grow apples for, you know, three, four months of the year, by being able to put them away in storage theoretically Ireland could supply itself with all of the apples it consumes for maybe 80% of the year there might be kind of a time frame around early June to or mid-June to mid-August whereby we can't supply our own apples which means we should be importing apples at that time of the year to satisfy our demand but unfortunately we have a deal way around whereby we import about 80 to 90% of the apples we consume and we only produce the uh, the remaining figure so by Using technology and using these storage bins, it means that we will be able to hopefully reduce the amount of apples that are imported in Ireland. And if we could do that en masse with all of the other producers, we'd be in a very good position as far as the industry is concerned. So it sounds like you've invested in a lot of equipment and we're in the pressing plant at the moment, which is a relatively new addition to the estate. Yeah, yeah, it's a new addition to the estate. It's probably, it is the most modern part of it and we feel that we want to be able to incorporate modern production techniques and we sought out these um, this, some of this equipment from um, specialist apple growing regions in northern Italy where they've mastered the art of doing this. They've created an industry in 50 years uh, from nothing. They've managed to turn a, a million acres into 20% of, our, of Europe's apple production um, in a matter of 50 years. So they know what they're doing. So we're trying to uh, emulate some of what they've done. You have travelled extensively and that's where you've done a lot of your research and got ideas to de- to develop the the production here. Sure. And in fact, even even ahead of the production or, or before, I should say, you know, the manner in which um, food production takes place from, from growing to crop management to how it's distributed around the local economies in Europe is a model that we're... we're quite heavily chasing you know um europe or a lot of places in europe will consume about 30 percent of the food that they grow um in in their local economies in ireland we're probably in and around three or four percent of what we grow locally we consume locally so not only are we borrowing some of the technical aspects from what we've seen around europe but we're trying to push it from an economic perspective and from a, a food production and consumption locally perspective if that makes sense Absolutely, yeah. I think we need to be making more of an effort to consume what's on our doorstep and, and avoid exporting a lot of it. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, you, some of the other industries in Ireland are great at doing their thing for, for export, but the problem then is that we're 
left exporting all of our good stuff and we're not keeping enough of it to consume ourselves and not only are we going to consume it ourselves but if we do do that we propagate local industry we pro- propagate the local producers um, and we, we keep things floating better than they are currently in Ireland. Food tourism is a huge opportunity here in Ireland where do you see Addy Flynn in that space? It's a great question um, it's somewhat an open book for us in, in, in probably a, a longer term plan but in the short and medium term we want to be able to open up the estate for horticultural tours uh, whether that's ad hoc tours that people come in and do in a short term for an hour or two or three or whether we develop courses that people can come on and um, and actually come in and learn you know processes from start to finish about apple production, apple growing, bottling and then even you know the marketing of some of the products you know it's really an open book for us but we're early stages yet, but we're going to be able to build upon what we have and, and turn it into an amenity of that nature soon. So you, do you see yourself offering a visitor experience then if tourists want to come and see, because this looks like you're developing a viewing area up above here the, so that people can come in and look at the pressing plant in operation? Um, well, interestingly, that's probably where an office is going to go. Oh, but really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I hope I've given you an idea. <laughs> <laughs> you may have, you may have. Um, no, we definitely do see tourism uh, and giving access to tourists um, being a, a very good potential business opportunity for us here. Um, I suppose we're right now we're 100% a food company uh, and as you've probably seen from coming in it's uh, still in development and we're still trying to iron out how we're going to offer that as a package but it's definitely going to be on the cards at some point. Well I think I have to say as I came in the whole experience and the setup it's all very visually appealing it's all very well maintained there must be a lot of time and effort and people here to make sure that the place looks as well as what it does. Yeah there's, there's a bit of grass to be cut all right <laughs> there's, um, there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff that has to be done to, to maintain um, an estate of this size and of this nature but um, it's been a, a labour of love I suppose it's been under its current stewardship for 15, 16 nearly actually nearly 17 years now and um, it hasn't some, been something that's happened overnight so it's taken a lot of time to get it to where it is and and maintenance of that uh, image as you've described is, is something that we're, we're working strongly to keep the wall garden, the walled garden in particular, is is very it's very peaceful there, and there's lots of different items growing there. Tell us about some of the products that are there. Sure, sure. Um, so we've really tried to bring the wall garden back from some of its original heritage when it was established a few hundred years ago. Um, you know, you would have had a kitchen garden, which would have been growing, you know, your root vegetables and your brassicas for consumption in the home, which you may have seen. We had a little box-off area where we're doing a lot of growth for that. And in the past, when we've grown that, we've offloaded it to some local restaurants and so forth. Um, <clears throat> but now, <clears throat> excuse me, but now it's um, a little bit more commercial than your average wall garden may have been many years ago. We're trying to maintain that that peaceful feel, but we have, um, you know, there's probably about a, a quarter, if not a little bit more than that, an acre of blackcurrants themselves growing, which grows into our blackcurrant preserves. Uh, we'll also be able to use those blackcurrants from a commercial perspective in juicing and so forth so that we can add it to our apple juices and potentially make different varieties going forward. So we're making, we're trying to maintain its, um, its very good look and feel, but we do have uh, a commercial uh, method behind that to make sure that we're, we're using it to it, the best of its ability. You showed me a Tayberry bush. I'd never come across that before. Just explain what that is. Yeah, so it's it's somewhat a cross between a, um, a raspberry and 
a blackberry. Um, it's as far as I know how it works is that a um, a raspberry tr- plant or its root end is um, <clears throat> spliced in with say a blackcurrant tree, and the result is a kind of a crossberry which are pretty, pretty tasty, actually. <laughs> and there's no thorns in the bush, you were saying? Yeah, they're, they're very, very minimal thorn in the manner that they grow because of the way the, um, the splice works on them, uh, or the graft, I should say. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, it makes it a little bit easier to harvest. It was very interesting, too, what you said to me whenever I asked about the birds because I'd say it's just a, a feast for birds all over the estate. Yeah, well, particularly in the Royal Garden, it's when fruit starts to ripen up. Um, you're probably two weeks too early to see the, some of the blackcurrants coming in in full swing, but we would have some large walking cages that we erect over them which have bird netting. Um, you might have seen some of our brassicas growing whereby there's already netting for butterfly and so forth, and that's to stop them getting at our cabbage and our uh, spinach and things like that because they'll play havoc. And then up in, our, uh, up in our orchards, we're lucky because there's a lot of grain growing around the estate that somewhat distracts the birds, but we've other methods whereby we hang reflective tape, which kind of flickers in the wind, scares a few of the birds away and you just use a couple of these little tricks and also balance out the natural ecosystem of other animals and predatory creatures around to help let your apples grow in peace (laughs) because obviously the birds and all of those other wildlife they're very important to the whole ecosystem they absolutely are yeah um it's even in the last 15 20 years you'd even see a lot of games kind of minimized in its appearance around these parts of ireland because whether it's hunting or whether it's the local um environment that has changed but these were all important animals that have existed around land for many many years and you can kind of see them kind of being reduced so we have a very hands-off approach here with with wildlife uh with and we really want to encourage it to grow if you were able to see into the future, say in 10, 15 years' time, where would you like to see Addy Flynn being positioned in terms of the, its contribution to the economy, say? It's a great question. Um, a lot of that lies with some of the current numbers that you'd see around apple production in Ireland. So, um, and, and it's one of the reasons why we're, we're doing what we're doing. Ireland consumes around, in the last figures done a few years ago, consumes around €100 million Euro worth of apples. Um, we grow about five, six million worth, which means we're importing the rest. So without being able to give you the crystal ball answer to where, what we're going to be doing in 10 years, because who knows, we know that that's a big driver for us, is, to, is looking at that market and seeing we can be doing this ourselves in Ireland. And not only can we be doing it, but we can be working and encouraging other growers who want to get involved in this industry to do it. Uh, because there's so much land around Ireland we can plant a lot of apples if we really wanted to so there's an industry there to be to be brought back to an indigenous industry then there's also um, another ethos that we follow that's helped driving us you know for where we want to be in five ten years which is we sort of identified it as four pillars so you have the the growth of or the horticultural aspect of what we're doing then you'll have the processing which is adding value so your apples turning into juice then we'll have the you know the supply chain and the marketing aspect which is bringing that product uh, to the local market uh, keeping it in a local supply chain and then also being able to use the estate in some way to as well as our uh, products to to impress our consumers and to help them learn about how food is made. So whether they're on site here doing horticultural trips, whether they're using resources that we could have on uh, digital media or websites, or whether it's just through the consumption of food that they can realise that you know really good products can be made in Ireland. It sounds like collaboration is something that's very important to you. Absolutely, yeah. No one, 
I think collaboration is absolutely key. Um, Ireland is, is okay at it, but we need to get better at it. And we need to be able to work an awful lot more together as private companies and as private organisations uh, in a collaborative manner so that we can try and push things on on our own. Um, government is there to support, but um, you know, government, I think as you said, whatever they offer should be the cherry on top and the icing on the cake, but we need to push these things harder and own it ourselves. Okay, well listen, we're going to have a little tasting here before we finish up, so just talk us through the two products that we have here. Sure, sure. So um, both these products are made from apples that would have been picked in the last harvest that we had. There's some fizz in that now. So this indeed. is the sparkling one. So this uh, this is something that you don't often see in terms of apple juice, a sparkling apple juice. Lovely. There you are. That's right, yeah. Um, sparkling apple juice is definitely not a common drink that you'd see around. Um, people typically go for sparkling waters or... Well, you know, your normal sparkling uh, soft drinks that you'd see the, the, the larger organisations making. Um, we felt that adding, in fact, one of the reasons we did this is because drinking apple juice in the morning is typically when people consume it uh, as an alternative to an orange juice, but you can't grow oranges in Ireland, so we won't talk about them. Um, and we were thinking, right, well, how can we broaden the appeal of apple juice and, and allow people to consume it either on its own or potentially if you were to run something else through it. So we're trying to broaden the, uh, I suppose broaden the appeal for the consumption of apple juice. Um, obviously, we're not the first people to do it, but uh, we, we feel that there's definitely um, a, 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 a much more complex taste profile when you add the carbon dioxide to it, so it has a much more different mouthfeel. And as I say, if you were to, to mix it with a nice gin or something like that, it's quite good. Funny, that was just going to be my next question. Do you recommend it to go with any particular spirit? And I would imagine it would be lovely with gin. Yeah, it, it typically goes very well with a very mild flavoured gin. If you have a gin that has a lot of botanical in it, the flavour profiles might clash. Or if you have a very clean, crisp vodka, which doesn't impact the taste of the apple juice too much, it goes quite well in that as well. We're not great vodka consumers in Ireland. Gin's a little bit more popular, so we'd probably see people asking the question about gin more. Yeah, I must give that a go now with gin, because I'm partial to gin. And I'll just get you to open then the other one. That's the the non-sparkling one. That's right. And do you find that one is more popular than the other? Um, It's a great question. It's hard to ascertain the answer to that right now, because we've just brought the sparkling version out a couple of months now. Um... People are, like yourself, a little bit intrigued because they might necessarily have seen it. Some people just aren't into fizzy drinks. Some people love them. So if you ask me that question in a year, I'll be able to give you an informative answer. Funny, I have a four-year-old now who's mad for apple juice. He loves apple juice and he's not a fizzy drink person at all. And the odd time when we've been out and the apple juice has been a fizzy one, he goes mad, just doesn't like it. Whereas I would prefer the fizzy version. That's right. and The sparkling version, I should say. Correct, correct, yeah. I mean, it's each to their own. We, we find that um, when we're, we're attending food events where we might have a stall and we have our products, we see a bit of surprise on people's face when they try to spark an aversion. They may not have liked apple juice. They try it. Like, I suppose we could say we've converted them. <laughs> well, you've definitely converted me. I've loved that now. And thanks very much for the tasting and oh, for having God. me here today. Best of luck with it and keep us posted now as the whole business develops. Sure, sure. Well, we'll, we'll keep you posted and we'll... Um, we put up as much as we can on our website and our social media to allow people to, to follow what we're doing. You can get us on Twitter on at Atty Flynn Estate. Our Facebook profile is Atty Flynn Estate as well, and you can follow our developments there. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Paul. You're very welcome. Thank you. 
You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break I was talking to Paul Mordant, General Manager of award-winning Addy Flynn Estate which produces natural fruit, beverages, vinegars, preserves and chutneys. If you're just tuning in now and you missed that interview you can catch it on The Best Possible Taste repeat on West Limerick 102 FM on Wednesday mornings at 8am and the podcasts are available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com as well as iTunes and the podcast app and it's also on the taste.ie website. Now, our next guest on this second Helping's Best Possible Taste is our resident wine guru, Ron Forrestal, from Forrestal Wine Merchants. In November 2017, Ron visited the studio to share his invaluable advice about ordering wine when visiting a restaurant. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. Ron, you're very welcome to the studio this evening. We have a very important topic to discuss tonight because Christmas is coming. We're not talking about Christmas wines, but we're talking about whenever you're out for that special meal now coming up to Christmas, how to choose your wine, how to order your wine, how to really get the most for your money, I suppose, whenever you're you're choosing a bottle of wine in a restaurant. Yes, Sharon. It's, um, you know, some people become very intimidated by wine lists uh, when they see them. And I just thought we'd give it kind of brief synopsis of what a wine list is like and, and the reason that things are put in certain places on them. It might help when you're with your group of 12 or 14 or 20 staff and you sit down and somebody hands you a wine list and you get nervous for the first few minutes. So just to get you through that and uh, explain what different things mean, I thought it might help. Because I think a lot of people, myself included, there's certain types of wines that I like. I see them. I look at the number beside them. And I don't mean the number on the list. Mm. I mean the number with the euro sign beside it to see how much it is. Yeah, that listen, to, as anyone will tell you that produces wine lists or restaurants, that uh, the out of a wine list of 20 or 25 items, which would be about average uh, on a wine list, um, it's the same six or eight wines that sell all the time. And price dictates all that, really. Um, and the rest of the more upmarket products or the more obscure products sell much less, but they still have to be there because the wine list has to be interesting. It has to look interesting. And you're looking for that one person. The whole idea of designing a wine list is that when you sit down, you have to think of every customer that you have coming in. You're not thinking of your, your average customer. You're thinking of the one that's more, a little more out there, maybe looking for something different. And you want to make sure you have a bottle of wine for them because if you don't have a bottle of wine for them, you could lose out on that sale if you're a restaurant owner. Uh, or they may have a glass instead of a bottle, you know, all those kind of things. That's very important. And price is a huge uh, issue there as well now, that you don't overprice your wine list, um, because that will just push people away from buying wine as well. So I am always harping on to, to restaurant owners to make sure that they, they offer good value for money at all times. So the first section is usually house wine. Yes. Mind you, uh, a lot of restaurants now you'll see are tending to hide away their house wine a little bit more. It may not be on the first page anymore. Uh, they might tend to put it at the back of the list. Because if you go open up wine list and see, oh, there's a Pinot Grigio uh, from Italy. Uh, don't recognize the name of it, but it's 21 euros. That's perfect. Done. List closed. The other four pages are absolutely wasted. No one ever knows they're there. Whereas at least if you put the house wines at the back, the people have to leaf through the first three pages. So at least they know that you have a Pinot Grigio that's 26 euros. That's a slightly better product, maybe. Or that you have a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc at 32 euros, which is actually excellent value. And you know the product, you've seen it before. 
and it gives that chance to look through it. Whereas if it's at the front, you're done. And uh, it's uh, I'd advise always that they put them at the back. What is the average spend on a bottle of wine? Well, it very much depends on the kind of restaurant it is you're in. Um, that dictates what their house wine price level will be. Uh, house wine ranges from anything from 18 or 19 euros, which is very good value now, up to, God, up to 40, if you really want it, depending on where you're eating. I think a lot of people would say now, yeah, they'd be splash annoyed if they were spending 40 euros on a bottle of wine. You know, because let's talk, let's just imagine we're in your average style restaurant. Mm. You know, the two of you are out for a nice meal, but it's not, you're not in a Michelin star restaurant, for example, but you're in a restaurant that maybe has won a few awards and is well mm. enough known. So what, what sort of price their are we talking about? Their house wine will tend to start at around 22 or 23 euros. That'll tend to be their house wine. They tend to have a bit of a gap then that jumps up to about 26 or 27 euros. But what I would, I would, my little hint on, on choosing wine particularly is that the for restaurants, the house wine is a very important product for them. It tends to be a pretty good product normally. They, it's the one they sell the most of. Their house wine, it might be two house wines, it could be three. They will be about 60 to 70% of their sales will be in that bracket. So it's important that they're good. Um, but oftentimes there's better value just above that uh, at the 27, 28 euro mark because they don't tend to price them up as much as house wine would get. Um, they tend to take less out of them. And actually... The ones that go up to 32, 34, 36 tend to be much better value for money, if you know what I mean, because the margin isn't near as high on those products because they sell fewer of them. And if they were to take the same margin, it would mean they'd be very high priced and they wouldn't sell at all. So I, I believe, listen, if you're most of the wine is all sold under 30 euros on wine list, probably 90 percent of it. But coming to Christmas is a slightly different time. People tend to trade up slightly like we sell a lot more Sancerre, a lot more Chablis. A lot more New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc with reds in a lot more Australian Shiraz, good Italian wines like Paso. They tend to sell a little bit more at Christmas time. In terms of staff, then it's great if you have staff in a restaurant who are very knowledgeable about the wine because it's nice to be able to say mm. to a member of staff, well, what would you recommend? So, you know, we like white, we like Sauvignon Blanc or Pinot Grigio or whatever it is. What would you recommend? And often the staff, they just don't have all that knowledge that you'd like them to have. Well, that's, a, you know, it's a huge problem for restaurants and, and they try and they, they try hard. And I, I do a good bit of training for restaurants where we come in and do an hour in the afternoon. The problem is that most of them are operating on a lot of part-time staff, whereas they only get them for when they drive back from college working on a Friday night and maybe a Saturday. They don't have time to train them. Most of the work is done on the job um, and the wine kind of loses out because the food is pretty complicated as it is um, for for young staff so they find the wine is just an absolute no-go area for a lot of them um, but you can if you just take back to the best experiences you've had in a restaurant um, it the food can be fantastic um, but the ones that really stand out are you know the ones where you get someone serving you who's not over the top now but who's just very confident helped you out you know as in said um, you know thinking of having a glass of wine absolutely have a glass of wine um, or don't want to have red or white and say, listen, why don't you have two glasses of white to start and have a half bottle of red? You know, we have four half bottles in red. And that's like if you think somebody has that bit of confidence and they're telling you something is nice, you tend to believe them, first of all. And you tend to like it because generally they're they're, they're telling you the, the truth. Um, and you just love to be pointed in a, in a direction. And they're very memorable nights. And you can always remember back to a place. God, I was there and that guy was very good. Or that young girl was fantastic. She's only a young girl, but she was really, really good. 
And I think they stand out much more than food does a lot of the time. Um, so it's very important. But then for the restaurant owners, it's an absolute nightmare trying to find people. So I'd imagine, yeah, it is. And and if you do find somebody, then there's usually a cost associated with that that you might not be in a position to, to pay, even though it probably is a very good investment. It is, but it, it's cost isn't their main concern because they would pay if they could actually find someone to pay. The issue is that nobody looks at the restaurant service um, uh, as a career at all. If you go to Spain or you go to Portugal and you sit down in a, in a you know in a in a, a square that has eight or ten restaurants in it, and just look around, look at the average age of the people that's working in the restaurant. It's a career. This there's guys and and ladies in their thirties, forties, fifties. This is a career. They do it every summer or they do it every year. They have kids. They put their kids through college. This is a, it's a serious business for them. Whereas we don't look at that at all here. We look at look at working the restaurant business as something you do when you're. 17 to 25 and if you're still doing it when you're 25 then you know you need to move on and find a different career whereas it's an awful shame because it's uh, what happens then when you try and open up a really serious restaurant you find it impossible to find the people and in our industry here in Ireland we do have some people who are very well known for being very good managers like Declan Maxwell in mm. Luna formerly of Chapter 1 is, is a person that comes to mind that obviously has made a very good career Absolutely. out of hospitality management Oh it's it's a fantastic career um, and my daughter is in uh, LIT at the moment uh, doing event management and for the in a four year course a degree course and there's a 100% employment 100% employment out of event management um, they've had um, three career days already. This is first year now, first semester of first year. And they've had three career days where companies or hotels, um, PR companies have come in to to show them what they do and to take their names and their CVs that for, for employment. I mean, there's just so much employment, it's frightening. And it's not just um, um, restaurant business. Kitchens are absolutely, you know, they're, they're wiped out as far as staff is concerned. Um, and the fact that the rest of Europe is doing pretty well as well, we're not getting the, the influx of foreign, foreign kitchen workers or restaurant workers that we used to get at all anymore. So it's, it's a real uh, problem ongoing. Well, you've brought some wine in tonight that you're going to talk to us about. Yes. Well, I thought just when you're looking at a wine list in a restaurant, there's, you know you know what you drink at home. You, you might have drink Pinot Grigio, you might drink Sauvignon Blanc. Um, but you'll oftentimes on a restaurant list, you'll find a bit of French product, which may be a bit more obscure and harder to figure out. But just to be clear on a couple of points, first of all, that the vast majority of, of French wine and white particularly is either Sauvignon Blanc or Chardonnay. That's the reality. It's fairly straightforward, really. There's more obscure ones and they tend to blend them a bit together more than the New World does. But like uh, they, all the Sancerres, the, the Hope Pachou, lots of stuff in the Loire Valley, all Sauvignon Blanc, every bit of it. Now, it's very different than a lot of the New World ones. They don't tend to be as flowery. They tend to be more acidic, um, but, but work really well with food. And for reds, then, there's a huge amount of Cabernet, huge amount of Merlot, and Syrah, which is Shiraz. So it's not as complicated as it actually seems. Um, but just have a look through the list and, and look, you know, the descriptions that are under them, some of them aren't that helpful because they tend to be fairly uh, flowery descriptions on, you know, uh, leather and cocoa beans and stuff, which absolutely means nothing to anybody, probably most of the time. Whereas I, I'm always trying to push the fact that you tell them exactly what's in the bottle. If it doesn't say what's in the bottle, then tell them if it's a French product, 
that says Chateau Bellevue, you tell them it's Cabernet and it's Merlot. This is a blend of Cabernet and Merlot. And I tell you, it'll triple the sales of the product because if nobody knows what it is, they just can't buy it. Yeah, that's right. You're yeah. absolutely right that the right message has to be there yeah, for people absolutely. to understand what they're buying and want to buy it. Um, but uh, just simply ask the question. When you get a wine list, ask the question. Um, you know, it might be the person that's serving you that know, but surely somebody will know that's there. And just ask them you're looking for something nice, say a group of eight or ten people or 12 or 14 people. The main thing is to get something that's going to suit a crowd. Um, so Sauvignon Blanc and White works very well because that's the most popular white by far. Um, Cabernet or Merlot or a blend of both probably works pretty well with a, a group of people for reds. Whereas something like Shiraz is a bit heavier, um, it mightn't be as Pinot Noir, is a bit light, so maybe it mightn't suit particular people. So it's just a matter. And listen, there's no way to spend too much because, you know, probably a night out like that is expensive enough without really pushing the boat out on far as the wine. There's great value on wine on the wine lists around the 22, 24, 26 bracket. Okay. Well, let's talk about the Pinot Grigio that you have. Yes, this is Nosvaldo. This is a restaurant-only product. It uh, has a cork, um, not a screw cap. It's from um, uh, Veneto in Italy. Really good quality um, Pinot Grigio, a bit better than the normal kind of house wine. It sits slightly above that, uh, but it's a smashing product. Um, and I like it, and I, I'm not a big fan of Pinot Grigio. I actually like that product. It has a bit of depth to it, a bit more than Pinot Grigio has normally. Yeah, that's a lovely Pinot Grigio. I have personal experience yeah, of it. Yeah, I is, really like that It one, is yeah. a lovely one. We'll stay with the white then and go to the Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah, the Vistamar Sauvignon Blanc. This is a Reserva, um, um, Sepia Sauvignon Blanc um, from Vistamar. is a very very big producer. Um, we have this on a couple of wine lists, actually, very local to here. Gusano uh, sits on the wine list around 28 or 29 euros. It's that kind of product, uh, both just, house wine. Just explain the Reserva. Do you pay more for a Reserve wine? You do generally, yeah. Um, is it just a marketing ploy? It depends what part of the world it came from. Um, uh, like we have a Spanish product there where reserve actually means something on the label. It means it has a criteria that it needs to fit. Uh, as far as Chile is concerned, there was no actual criteria it needs to fit. But as far as Vistamar is concerned, these producers, they have uh, their pouring wines, which is a certain level. Then they have the reserve ones, and they tend to come from particular patches within the, within the estate, which are fairly big patches to turn out because the production is pretty big. But they're from a particular vineyard, whereas a lot of the stuff down the ladder would be blended together from various places. So that's what reserve means in Chile. But I can write reserve in any label you want in Chile. There's absolutely no... So the, then in Spain, it has to meet certain criteria. In France, yeah. does it have to meet certain Not criteria? Not really, no. Okay. Is Spain the only country that no, really... No, Italy has the same... Okay. Um, has the same... Uh, they're a little um, uh, less straightforward in Italy. It's operated on where you are in Italy. So it may not mean the same thing in southern Italy as it does in northern Italy. It might be a slight difference. But Spain is across the board. There's just no way. Like this Crianza, Reserva, Gran Reserva. That's the levels. And it's all about how long it's spent in the barrel. Okay. For so, reds now. There's no whites. So for this, Rioja from um, Spain. And it's, it's a Reserva. It's a Reserva. Yeah. And it's 2013. So yeah. It has to spend a minimum of 12 months in a barrel. Minimum. It has to be in an oak barrel. And an actual barrel. It has to be. It, it's very expensive to put it in a barrel. Mm. So anything that's, that's um, like this uh, Spanish products that has been in a barrel, it's going to be costing you, in a, in a shop, it's going to be costing you 16 or 17 euros a bottle. And you know? so when you go into a restaurant, like what it's is their markup? You, yeah. Like it's usually 100% at least added on to it. It depends. It depends. A lot of them, a lot of them won't pick products that are available in shops. 
um, they tend to pick slight products are slightly better. I do like to see wine on a on a wine list that isn't readily available. I don't mm. like to think that there's a wine that I've sat and had at home last week that I spent ten euros on that it's now costing me thirty or forty. I do find that a bit upsetting. <laughs> well, it's, it's a fine line for the restaurant to deal with that because the restaurant is thinking, okay, I don't want anything that shows up anywhere that anyone kind of recognises. And then you have people coming in looking at the list and God, I don't recognise anything. And then they find it hard to pick something. So there's a fine line there. But it's it's okay then for, like, Pinot Grigio, just, it's a matter of great deal. People drink Pinot Grigio will tend to go with what's listed on the wine list. Um, Spain is pretty good as well because if it has reserve on it, people trust that certain amount. And it has Crianza, they trust that. Um, but it's a bit more obscure then when you go to Chile, for example, it's a bit more harder to, to manage because there's some awful Chilean wine in the country. Just awful. And uh, it's cheap. And it's just because you can't find it in a shop doesn't mean it's any good. You know, it doesn't mean it's any better. Um, so they're a bit more tricky, whereas Italy is a bit more straightforward. You'll recognize the names like, you know, Ripasso or Valpolicella or Amarone or Chianti. You'll recognize those as being kind of, you know, they're, they're a certain kind of quality. And you have a Ripasso there from 2014. Yes. Uh, this is a Ripasso from Campagnola. Um, Ripasso is a Valpolicella grape. Um, it's... It's one of my favourite wines. It's, it's not too heavy, yet it's a real bit of depth to it. Fantastic, but it works really well this time of year. Again, that's a 36, 37 euro bottle of wine on a wine list now. So it may yes. not be for everybody. Yeah, but it looks like a lovely bottle. It is a super. cork again. Cork again, yeah, absolutely. Italy's more into its corks, is it? It is more into it, except for the pouring levels, you know, where you have the more primitivos, the more, um, um, you know, the Tribbiano and the whites or the Montepulgianos tend to be in screw caps. Okay. And then you have two more. Are they both red? Is that both white red. in that one? Or is that, yeah, they're yeah, both red. That's a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, a Matua um, from the central um, Otega. It's a smashing bottle of wine. Again, over 40 euros on a wine. Really? Yeah. Worth it though. Smashing. Is, and is it popular? Is it one of your most popular? It's actually quite that? new to us. Um, it's only in the last couple of months we've taken it in and they have a smashing white as well. But it's the red we really got it for. Small quantities don't produce an awful lot of it. That's okay. really good. One to keep an eye out for them. Just yes. remind the, the Matua. Matua. It's, and it's a lovely grey label with the blue. Yeah, it is very. It's very strong. They're very label. good at labels. They're mm. very good at marketing. They, they put a lot of work into it and they make them very eye catching. And, and uh, the whole package is always pretty good from New Zealand, we find. And then you've one more. It's a Malbec. Malbec, because Malbec is just hugely popular. It's And it's the time of year it really comes into its own in, in the winter time because it's more of a. You know, cold nights, kind of full-bodied reds kind of product. Works very well at red meat, um, uh, steaks, even, you know, heavy dishes besides that. And this one from Pascal Tosso from uh, Mendoza. That's good value. It's about 28, 29 euros in the wine list. That's not too Just bad. Just above cost wine. Yeah. But it's a lovely product. So the prices range from which one's the cheapest one? Well, probably the Pinot Grigio would sit probably about the cheapest uh, on the whites. And then the Malbec would be on the reds. Okay. And then the most expensive one is your Matua. Yes. Okay, but definitely one to keep an eye out for. Yes, indeed. All right, great advice, Ron. Thanks very much. Hopefully no we'll see a spike now in the, the restaurant <laughs> wine sales. Yeah, yeah, it is. Great time here. You know, why not tr- give something new a try? You never know. It yeah. might turn out to be your favourite wine it. of all time. Yeah. Great to talk to you. Thanks for coming in tonight. No bother. Thanks, Sharon. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine.
Welcome back to the best possible taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break I was talking to our resident wine guru Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants. In November 2017 Ron visited the studio to share his invaluable advice about ordering wine when visiting a restaurant. And earlier in the programme we enjoyed a visit to Addy Flynn Estate on the outskirts of Limerick City where I met Paul Mordant, General Manager who told us all about their award-winning range of natural fruit beverages vinegars, preserves and chutneys. If you'd like to catch up on Best Possible Taste, it's repeated on West Limerick 102 FM on Wednesday mornings at 8am and the podcasts are available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com as well as iTunes and the podcast app and it's also on the taste.ie website. And that brings us to the end of tonight's second helping show. Thanks for tuning in and feel free to get in touch with your food and drink news, recipes and events. Email me s.nunan at live.ie And until next time, bon appétit. Thanks for listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. To get in touch with the best possible taste, email Sharon at SharonNoonan.com or tweet Sharon at Queen of Org, as in Queen of Organisation. Bon appétit. <laughs>